Hello, this is Prevention Works, the podcast of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. I'm Gretchen Miller and our guest today is Steve Allender, Professor of Public Health and Founding Director of the Global Obesity Centre or GLOBE at Deakin University. And GLOBE is a World Health Organisation collaborating centre for obesity prevention since 2003. There are so many things we could talk with Steve about today, but we're focusing on what complex systems thinking brings to community-based intervention. Or perhaps it should be what community brings to systems thinking. Plus, we'll consider that elephant in the room, climate change, and what that brings to bear to systems thinking and obesity and how malnutrition enters the picture. Steve, let's start with your abiding interest in the ground level and community engagement. Would you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how that has influenced your approach through your working life? Sure, yeah. I was raised in a rural community with a population of about 120 people and we lived on a farm about 25 kilometres outside of there. So it was a pretty self-contained place and if a problem arose, you typically just got on with it and solved it. And when I think about growing up there, things like building town halls, building gymnasiums for the high school, building sporting centres were basically local people getting together and deciding that this needs to be done, so we'll do it. So I guess I saw from a pretty early age how powerful community could be but also how powerful engaging communities in owning problems from themselves is in terms of solving problems. Was there any external support of that community or did the community just get on and and self-motivate? Yeah I think it varied a lot and it varied by scheme and you know as we know sometimes the, the funding goes in particular directions and sometimes it goes in others. So I think probably the key aspect is it was highly adaptable if the support was there that they would use it to the the best of their ability, but quite often the support wasn't there. This is quite a small rural community. And so they would just have to get on with it with the resources at hand. And I suppose that's the other thing that's led to when we work with communities, working from their point of view, but also working with the resources available. So rather than working together and deciding we need to raise a bunch of money to do something, our starting point is to say, well, what capacity do we have And where's the best place to apply it? So we're talking about community and I guess the question is how we define community, what a community actually is. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, question and it's such a problem because when you say we're thinking about the community, everybody gets a different picture in their head of what that means. And when I think of community, what I'm thinking of is a group of people with a shared interest or a shared problem to solve. So Federal Cabinet is a particular community with a particular set of problems. COAG is a particular community with a particular set of issues, as is new mums in a small town, as is a local government authority. And I think one of the errors we make when we get that mental picture of what community means is we also then assume that that's a rigid boundary. But if I think of some of the work we're doing with Campbelltown, for example, in in southwest Sydney, There are multiple communities there defined by faith, defined by their school community, defined by age, defined by the clubs they attend. And when you start thinking of it like that, 
you lose those boundaries, but those points of intersection provide really powerful points for change. So the intersection between, say, a faith community and sporting clubs is probably an incredibly powerful place to support both. So that's where I'd like to bring in the idea of systems thinking, which is not a new idea and yet it's kind of a buzzword at the moment. But if we look at systems thinking in its, I guess, its original and purest intent and what it actually is, maybe we should define that first and then talk about why systems thinking is such a useful tool when we're considering the complexities of community. And I think that's the important term there is complexity. So um, as you mentioned, there's actually a really rich tradition in systems thinking and and systems thinking really comes from a wide range of disciplines. So there's a really nice book by Ray Eisen where he provides a typology of the different disciplines where systems have emerged from, the different ways they think about complexity and then the different tools. So we put ourselves in, in a particular part of that systems landscape, notably system dynamics and adaptive systems and systems complexity. But there's a lot, as you said, there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of words. But what that approach essentially means is we're pretty interested in understanding the complexity and the relationships of cause and effect around a particular problem as a part of defining a solution to that problem. And so for childhood obesity, for example, in a community, we would ask the question, what are the relationships of cause and effect that are leading to this problem? And in each community that will be different, but it would include access to healthy food, but it goes to broader social determinants. So you'll hear often about intergenerational cooking or intergenerational poverty and other sorts of aspects. And so what you're aiming to do is is to understand that much broader complexity to then have a shared mental model that allows you to, to approach solving the problem in a more informed way. And traditionally, when we approach childhood obesity, we just go, okay, it's about BMI, it's about body mass index. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a really nice point. So we looking for competitive funding like everybody else from medical research funds and so hard outcome measures like BMI are really important but actually when we work in communities we work with them to define the issue they want to approach so we measure BMI to see whether weight status has changed but communities will often focus on mental well-being of their kids or improving uh, health literacy or improving access to healthy food. And so obesity is a really important part of the scientific side of what we do. The public-facing side of what we do is far more around a positive conception of the health of kids and, and more broadly the health of communities. What might be some of the elements of the system that you have to consider as you look at the surrounding issues? So the way that we approach it is that we identify with the community, the key leaders in that community, and and we define leaders as people who have authority to improve the environments where kids uh, are either active or make food choices. That's a really broad conception when you think about it. And so we end up with retail leaders, CEOs of councils, but also major business leaders. And and to give you one example in Western Victoria, that, that group of people included key management in the local water company and one of the outcomes was to work to change the taste of water because it was recognized as one of the aspects that led to poor water consumption so the idea really is to capture the complexity in any given situation with the key leaders who can change that so it it goes as broader as narrow as what matters to that group of people 
So the system includes community leaders, but it also includes the taste of water. That's right. Quite remarkable, but it also includes more obvious things, perhaps like food availability, various stakeholder groups. Who are the stakeholders? Can you maybe outline just, again, that range that we're talking about here? Yeah, it's a huge range. So you, you would begin with the, the typical groups you would start with in terms of capacity building approaches in communities. So that would be the local health services, the local schools, local school kids, local government. And, and that would be a typical sort of starting point. And historically, one of those agencies would potentially buy a program from somewhere else and run it for a period of time and wonder why it hadn't worked. We're starting with that leadership and then asking who else is a part of this system. And that, that spreads to people involved in sporting clubs, faith leaders in the community, but you also have business leaders becoming involved. And so We've had interventions across particular towns where the local council has preferenced um, food providers who only provide a healthy menu, and that's changed the retail landscape in that particular community to drive healthier food. So it's as broad and or as narrow as the community wants it to be. So you've been doing this work in some communities for 20-odd years. What kind of shifts in approach and what kind of learnings have you had in doing that work over that period of time? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and one of the critical aspects to what we're doing is the intent for capacity building. So the idea is that if we do this work with the community, there's the ability for that work to continue without us being involved. And one of the things that's really stood out is how adaptable communities can be when they're provided with that capacity. So to give an example, in Western Victoria, we've been using systems thinking, particularly group model building, to support childhood obesity initiatives across that region. As a result of us building the capacity, they're now using those techniques for a whole range of other health issues, notably educational attainment, mental health of youth. And more recently, as COVID hit, they could immediately pivot to using these techniques to plan their way out of COVID and plan the recovery that they wanted. And one of the key aspects of that is being able to engage the key community leaders in a shared model of the problem and therefore the solution. So it's it's been really fascinating to see just how much community can do. And, and there's a sort of attribution contribution thing there where we often say, if this works and if this is a success, we won't be in the photo. <laughs> It'll be long after we're gone that, that things are still happening. So what you're building then is a virtuous circle that is possibly more of a spiral, in fact. Yeah, and in, in one of the aspects of system science we use a lot is the idea of feedback loops. So how do you create a feedback loop that maintains and builds the momentum in a community to improve the health of kids? You know, And that's a function of interest and desire to do something, an awareness of the problem, opportunities and, and evidence that's easy to apply, implementing that, learning from that. And, you know, If that cycle works, it then spins off to try something again and try something again and try something again. And that means that it's quite a flexible approach, isn't it? So over 20 years, the makeup of a community would change and could change quite dramatically. So you need not to be sort of rusted on in, in the one approach. And, and that's where the adaptive side of this comes in. So in a perfect world, what we're really doing is providing the capacity for a community to understand the complexity of the situation they're in, 
engage the evidence about what we know works and implement what's possible in that community. And if something new came along mid-trial, we would offer it to the community and see whether they wanted to put that in and optimise it based on what they understand about their system. And I think that's a really critical aspect of this. We're not set the design, run it for three years, wonder why it didn't work. A large part of the science is how do you provide an adaptive process that communities can use in real time. And to give another example, we've been working across many, many communities and one of the things we see in every trial is some version of a social or economic shock and, and COVID's a really obvious one. But you think within a year we've had major bushfires in Gippsland in Victoria and in those communities they are similarly using these techniques to think about how they recover from bushfire because they can see a way of sharing how they understand the complexity of the problem and see places where they can intervene to make improvements. So it becomes quite an organic development of community knowledge and power, I guess. I'm interested in, as a researcher, quite often, you know, funding is limited to a particular time. Outcomes need to be expressed in a way that satisfies funding bodies or research bodies. What you're talking about is something very, very organic what are some of the challenges as a researcher in selling the potential outcomes in containing in some way? Because I guess if you've got a control group and you've got a group which is actually experiencing the changes, you know, how is that ethical? You'd have a whole lot of factors pushing and pulling you as, as a researcher. One of the things we're trying to get to is a generalised systematic process to find the right thing to do at the right time for a community. So we've built software that helps them do that and a bunch of other things. So the intervention is an adaptive process, but what we do in intervention design is probably more traditional where we do have an intervention and a comparison group. One of the things you you were concerned about was the ethics of, of providing controls, and, and you're exactly right. So our previous trials suggest that in the first two to three years, you would get a 3 to 4% reduction in overweight and obesity prevalence, but you also get improvements in mental health, social relationships, and a whole bunch of other things like uh, sleep, levels of physical activity. And an argument that a dear friend Liz Waters used to make is that if you know the thing works, you can't have a control group because it's unethical. And I think that was a really interesting thought. And, and one of the ways we overcome that is with a design called a step wedge cluster randomised trial, which is a nice term to use to confound your friends and amuse your enemies. What it means is, let's say we have 10 communities, those communities each represent a cluster what we would do is take half of them, randomise half of them into step one, stepped, and the wedge is then uh, how these things grow over time. But the first step would be those first five communities get the intervention and the second five communities act as a comparison. And then at the two-year mark, both communities get the intervention. So the design allows those two to be compared against each other, but it also allows you to say to the communities in step two, you won't miss out on the intervention, but you'll give us a chance to learn from the first five communities and you'll get a much better product at that five-year mark. So that's the way we overcome quite a bit of that ethical concern. 
The other thing we do a lot, you know, we have really strong relationships with multiple people in those communities and our responsibility is the integrity of that relationship before anything else. So you asked a question about the timescales and funding and all those sorts of things. One of the major challenges when your intervention really is to build the capacity of community to use tools to decide what they think is the right thing to do. It's very hard in a grant application to say the intervention will be giving them a chance to decide for themselves. What grants want to see is the intervention will be a tablet taken at 10am every morning for a week. <laughs> that's that's what the grant wants to see. And then the next line is, and the tablet will weigh 1.25 milligrams and will be dissolved in one and a half litres of water. But the argument we have to make is that we know this is the most powerful way to create a change. Our ACE obesity project showed that it's the most palatable to government and to the community and to business, and it's also shown to be effective. So that's a strong argument for. The argument against is that difficulty in defining things, I guess. How do you maintain stability over much longer-term projects of 20 years? Yeah, so, so the... These relationships over 20 years have come and sort of grown and shrunk according to funding, so that is that is an element. But part of the reason why we have such a heavy focus on capacity building is because we want to leave a legacy where it's immune to the fluctuations in, in sort of fashion and funding for particular health aspects. So the other thing we're doing to try and overcome that is our emphasis is on teaching a complex problem-solving approach, which would just so happen to focus on the health of kids in that community. But as I mentioned before, you know, communities we've worked in are starting to use these techniques for COVID, for bushfire, for government planning, for water planning, and a whole bunch of other different things, which is really gratifying because it shows we have built capacity to use these techniques and, and they're clearly at least useful because people are using them. But it also means we overcome a little bit that larger grant cycle. And we're, we're doing some work now to try and think about how we would build complex problem-solving skills for the kids in those schools so that the next generation of people in those communities is trained in complex problem-solving and systems thinking. And we're also doing that in, in the university sector where we're looking to teach whole generations of students, particularly teachers, how they might incorporate systems thinking into the work that they do. And you're talking about the Global Obesity Centre when you're saying we. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So I think we've kind of covered it, but you referred to this approach as multi-layer and multi-action. Have I got that correct? Yeah. So if, if we think about the community in Western Victoria, in fact, that involves a representative group at state government level from education and health. That involves regional level, including health, education, university sector, and at the local level, including all the key community leaders. And those lines of communication allow for the lessons being learned in that community to hit at the state policy level to hit at the regional coordination level so that's one way of looking at it and then the other way of looking at it is within community we're also really interested in which of the different layers of community could be affected so I mentioned before local government local council shifting their um, purchasing patterns towards healthy food and that leading to a change in the caterers offerings across that town that's one example of that higher level, but we would also expect to see changes within the individual classroom. And so because we taught 
systems thinking and the schools had, had got interested in that, we had a situation where before the trial, the nutritionists had real trouble accessing the school because they wanted to go and talk to the kids about apples. After we started the trial, the nutritionists were working with the principals to help map the complexity of the food environment in those schools. And the principals were inviting them to the school to talk to the council and the other teachers about the food environment because they'd had an opportunity to co-create and share the development of the understanding, it led to a much more um, engaged relationship. And so the nutritionists were then able to work with the kids on how the local um, system affected their food choices, whereas before they couldn't gain access. And co-create is a key word there. I also wonder if it's not becoming a bit of a buzzword. <laughs> how, how do we make sure that words like co-create maintain their meaning? That's a great question. And I've got two PhD students working directly on this one specifically around what is co-design, co-creation, et cetera, et cetera, co-production as it applies to food retail outlets. So if we were to co-produce new food retail outlets with retailers and food suppliers, what would that look like? What would co-creation look like? And, and there's some real wobble in the language between those different terms. And what, what we're thinking about is nothing about us without us. And what we're thinking is those communities are involved in setting the direction, setting the tone, setting the, the level of action that's done. So that's how we think about co-creation. But again, that's difficult in the funding system where you have to write a very detailed application. But as an example of that, we would, we would go to the community and say, well, before we got funded, we were working together on this and we agreed to partner on this. How do you want this to look to your community? And one community will talk about child health. The next will talk about intergenerational relationships and health because they're the relevant things that they want to point their systems thinking towards. So nothing about us without us. And that's not about consultation. That is about genuine back and forth, which can be quite hard work. Let's face it, sometimes when you feel like you know the answer. I would say, oh, I, we don't know the answer. That's, that's the point. You know, we have an evidence base that says in an RCT that was heavily controlled, it looks like calorie restriction might have some mild impact that rebounds on childhood obesity. That's what we know. The other thing we know is that if we're going to get genuine change and we don't engage the people who are going to make the change, it, it won't happen. So we, our focus is on giving is the science of the process to get the best understanding of complexity, the science of how you integrate the evidence we know into that response, and the science of working out whether doing that is better than doing nothing or better than doing what we traditionally do. So that's a real challenge for researchers who might, and, you know, perhaps justly so because they've spent 5, 10, 20 years becoming experts, see themselves as experts in a particular field. How do you change that thinking amongst your colleagues? Yeah, I think it helps my PhD included Foucauldian discourse analysis. So there's a lot of work in there around the power of language and reproduction of held positions and so on and so on. You know, I mean, if your framing is that language is important and that expert positioning is something most people use language to do without even thinking about it, and on the other hand of the coin, we know we need the leaders to engage and own the response. It changes 
who you are completely in that relationship. I'm a servant to the community. They're not doing me a favour by, they are doing me a favour, but they're not doing me a favour by participating in the study. We're together collating and creating a response that makes sense to a problem that's important to them. So I wandered off topic a bit there. You're asking about how we shift the way that other academics see it. I think there's value in all of those perspectives. So we would use an evidence base that had shown the impact of changing food choices, for example, if it was from a controlled study, but we'd say this is a controlled study. So if it's going to work here, it has to work because you want it and because you can fit it into the local system. And then I think about getting our work published. So we, we published one of the first causal loop diagrams, which is a systems map or a version of it in about five years ago in PLOS One. And getting that published was nearly impossible because it hadn't really been done before at all. And I now see the similar sort of thing being published, you know, fairly regularly from us and from other groups. And the way I think of research is if we know how to do it, it's not research, right? the problems we should be working with in our research are things we can't solve. So I expect it to be hard and I expect that there will be a lag time between us doing the work and people catching up and saying that that's actually a valuable way to do it. And Sure. Tell me about Sticky, Systems Thinking in Community Knowledge Exchange. What is it? Yeah, so Sticky is a piece of software, that a web-based piece of software, and basically what it does is allow anybody to learn in a relatively short period of time how they can build a causal loop diagram, what some people call a systems map, using techniques that come from the science, so they're, they're informed by the science but don't require a a really expensive piece of software or a PhD in modelling to use. So the idea for Sticky came when I was really frustrated that to get somebody to do systems work in a community, it would be a consultant. They'd charge fifty or sixty thousand dollars. There'd be a glossy brochure at the end of it, and the community would look around and go, "What was that all about?" And what we needed to do was to give the communities a tool where they could share how they saw the problem in a way that was informed by the system science. So what Sticky does is allow somebody in that community who's been trained to facilitate a session with their working group or the broader community to develop a shared understanding of the system. And then Sticky allows them to identify where actions might be, identify the key actors, and then track how those things are changing over time, how the system is changing, how the actions are changing and how the interaction of stakeholders is changing over time. And the software itself has developed over time because we'll work with the community, Western Victoria, Campbelltown, some of our partners in Europe, and we'll say, okay, what else do you need this to do to be useful? And so that's how it evolves to be what it is today. Fantastic. Thank you. So you've done a lot of work in a lot of different communities, not just the Australian scenario. How do you have to adapt your thinking when you're working in a place which is quite different? Yeah, it's interesting because we've used this approach in the South Pacific and Fiji and planning to in Samoa. We've also worked in multiple countries across Europe, including the UK, Poland and South Africa and a whole range of different places. And the other kind of cool thing is Sticky now speaks, I think, about seven languages, and, and you know, including Russian, which is, is kind of hilarious. I might, I'll turn that around the other way and think about it this way. I don't think 
you could talk to any community leader and ask them whether they want to improve the health of their community. Nobody says no. So the starting point is really a shared understanding that there's something we could improve. And then our offer to that community is to say, well, we've developed a way that might be helpful. Do you want to give it a try? And so we really heavily de-risk the loss of social capital by a leader in a community saying, here's this fabulous thing, we bought it for 50 grand or whatever they pay a consultant, and now we're going to do it this way. And, and that immediately will turn half the room off. And whichever agency has got that single pot of funding is then you know, different to all the others. We go in and say, we'd like to work with you. Can you bring the leaders together? Let's try for a two-hour session. We work with Sticky with them and they map the first version of how they see a problem. And at the end of that session, we're then able to say, well, if you don't like that very much, that was just a deacon thing, don't worry about it. Or if you found that useful, we'd be happy to help you learn how to do the next steps and give you the tools to do it. And so far, we've probably worked in 600 separate communities. We have yet to have the response of we don't get it and we don't like it. We, Five or 600? Well, and it's a very top of head guess, but but lots of different places all around the world. And I think... The key reason why we get that is, or several, we deliberately use techniques from group model building which are participatory and increase engagement. We deliberately ask what the problem looks like from those people's point of view and after that they're fully engaged because, you know, they're used to someone coming in and saying, well, you've got higher blood pressure than the next neighbourhood so this is what we're going to do. It's unusual for someone to come and say, we've got some ways that might help. We'd like to see whether they're useful and, and learn from you how we can make it better. It's just a different relationship on the way in. So how that differs community to community, what it means is we're adaptive to what that community needs. So when we worked in Fiji in, in the first couple of years of this century, you know that, that would involve being part of key meetings across the village. It means the principal networks are key. But because we engage with that local leader, they tell us the right ways to work with that community. I'm just trying to think of other examples. You know, in so the faith communities are really big in, in South Pacific and Fiji, for example. And similarly, some of the work we're doing in, in Poland, the group there have identified a very different group of stakeholders than you might see in the UK or in the study in Portugal, for example. So I'd like to change direction now. And we've got a couple of big elephants in our global room, one of which is climate change, one of which is malnutrition. You call it a syndemic, multiple epidemics in one, a number of wicked problems coming together. Yeah, so this was part of a Lancet Commission on obesity. And and the Lancet Commission brings together, in that case, 40 leaders from around the world in a particular topic area to set the sort of direction for the next 20 to 50 years, saying this is is where we think we need to go if we're going to do something about this problem. And, And it started off as a Lancet Commission on obesity led by Boyd Swinburne and Bill Dietz. And they recruited a group of people from around the world. And we had been using this idea of systems thinking at the time, so in the transition into their thinking on that. And one of the key things is to try and understand the whole picture and the interdependencies rather than ignore them. So a randomised control trial, you're trying to randomise out context. All you're trying to do is see the effect of the tablet versus not having the tablet. And randomising takes out 
all the issues around age or ethnicity and those sorts of things. And the shift to systems thinking says, actually, that context is really important. We need to understand how things are interdependent, how that's different in a specific context, because there's the thing, they are the things that will determine whether what we do is successful or not and should determine what we do in the first place. When you apply that lens to thinking about obesity and thinking about the drivers of obesity, particularly being um, overconsumption of energy-dense food and also reducing levels of activity, they're really analogous or aligned, uh, completely related to malnutrition in all its forms, so obesity being one of those, but also climate change because at the root of each of those problems, if you take a global view, is overconsumption, and that, that includes overconsumption of energy-dense foods, but the way they're produced, the way they're transported, and so on and so on. So if the question is, what does the next 50 years look like and what, what's an ambitious target, then an ambitious target is to deal with the syndemic by approaching climate change and malnutrition in all its forms as the key targets for change. And I mentioned wicked problems before. Wicked problems by definition, well, what are they? I, I use the idea of a tangled, evolving beastie, but but they're, <laughs> they're, they're problems that have multiple interdependencies and, and don't necessarily respond the way you think they do when you intervene. So where does this lead you to when you've got so many enormous factors and so many variance in the local expression of them where does that research then take you yeah it's a, it's a really good question and and you know i mean it's our research agenda for the next little while but from our point of view we work at everything from global policy through to you know an individual classroom and, and everywhere in between so we have a lot of work gary Sachs's work for example is sort of international policy levers all the way through to you know individual community level interventions. One of the things to consider is this idea of double and triple duty actions. So double and triple duty actions are, are interventions, changes, policy levers, policy changes that act on more than one of those three things, malnutrition in all its forms, plus obesity and climate change. And so, you know, that involves the way we prepare and ship our food and so on and so on. So when we think about where it leads you, we do have some ideas about what those policy options mean, but there's a lot of open questions about how do we start impacting on those multiple dimensions of overconsumption that lead to obesity, malnutrition and climate change. When we chatted the other day, you made a really interesting point about the notion of expertise and having started our conversation with the incredibly local regarding communities, I would like to finish it with a consideration of what expertise is and what it isn't and how questioning that definition can actually really make a difference to community work. Yeah, that, that's interesting because it brings to mind the conversation we had about Foucault and, and the use of language to, to establish positions of power and positions of difference. Some communities value being able to present an expert to support getting the work done. So there are phases where having the professor present the work helps. It's more often that 
positioning yourself as expert is detrimental. I mean it when I say the interventions and the way they're designed in communities rely really heavily on how those people understand their community, which is something we will never be able to do from our distance. So to try to position ourselves as experts on what any particular community A, needs and B, what approach to that is going to be most effective is pretty naive and and you know the legitimate need for policy change to improve health is right because it's a blanket approach but it has differential effects room by room community by community and so i think a blend of both is essential but generally speaking i think expert positioning of an external party is counterproductive so we would spend a lot of time demonstrating how that expertise was shifting to within a community and that we weren't needed anymore. And we, we point that at obesity at the moment, but we also use these techniques for intimate partner violence and housing affordability and a whole bunch of other things. So our job is to put the right tools in the right hands at the right time to get the best possible impact on health. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Steve Allender is Professor of Public Health and Founding Director of the Global Obesity Centre, or GLOBE, at Deakin University in Victoria. There's more information on the website of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. Just look for Prevention Works. Steve has a great explainer video there about his work in Western Sydney and Victorian interventions in obesity. I'm Gretchen Miller. This is Prevention Works. Share us, like us, leave us a review. We love to hear from you. See you next time.